There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. Welcome back, my people. How you living? I'm Jahan Jones. Hey, I'm Taryn Finley. And it's your boy Shaquille Rambley. So, okay, gang. Before COVID forced most of us to quarantine and stay our asses home, one of the last things that we got to celebrate was Black History Month. And one of the conversations that we consistently have about the month is Black boy joy, Black girl magic. That is something that we should get to celebrate all around the year. It should be celebrated daily, not just during the shortest month of the year. I mean, the month of love, but still the shortest month of the year. So joining us today to talk about the why legacy that the diaspora has is friend to the show, all the way across the pond, speaking in the Queen's English, is Black Voices UK producer. You whipped out the action. <laughs> that was terrible. Jason Mansaray, this is my homeboy. Hey, uh, hey, uh, hey, hey, Jason. Jason. What an amazing introduction. It is so good to be here. Thank you very much. How was his accent? Um, uh, No comment. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jason, as you know, like, I met you in London last year. It was dope. And I'm from the Caribbean. As you know, I think I told you this when I met you. So a lot of us have a lot of family members who live in London. And I had no idea that Black History Month in the UK existed and began in 1987. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because, and it's interesting that you say Caribbean especially, because of course we have the huge Windrush generation that moved here, which was mainly um, people from the West Indies and the Caribbean who came to sort of fill, uh, you know, shortages in labor post-World War II. And it's really important to remember that they were also invited here and welcomed here as citizens of what was then uh, the British Empire. Mm. Um, So naturally, because of that uh, big influx, you've got this, you know, huge need to celebrate something like Black History Month, which, you know, in the UK is in October. What are some of the biggest misconceptions about Black Brits? Yeah, it's um, definitely the fact, I think, that this Windrush generation and slavery is kind of like the only parts of Black British history. And we know that that is absolutely not true on closer examination. We know that there's been Black people in Britain since the Romans were here. Um, So the discourse is really kind of sort of starting to change about that. And having a program like Black Voices HuffPost UK has really been an opportunity to kind of say, hang on, you know, what you all think about this very narrow framework of um, Black British history is actually complete nonsense. And there's so, so, so much more there. I think it's really interesting how, you know, especially this year, Black Lives Matter and Black History Month, they feel like such more of a prevalent global discussion rather than relegated to one part or one side of the diaspora. Where is Black History Month as a social mindset in 2020? 
you're seeing more discussion about sort of the very narrow framework of the black contribution to British culture and history, um, which I mentioned before. It's really being re-examined. The lens is increasing. Everything from health to media to politics, all of it is being re-examined and the inequalities are starting to be acknowledged. Even conversations about reparations is starting to come back in a really big way. And let's not forget that when slavery was abolished, British slave owners were compensated for their loss you know, mm. their loss right. while black people remained in indentured labor. And, you know, the, the, the crazy thing about this is the British government is, has only just paid off those loans, in fact. So, you know, for us, mm. we've been able to sort of really open up loads of different conversations, especially with black voices. We've covered everything from music. We've covered masculinity and feminism as well and looked at, you know, all these stereotypes that are still there. We've looked at LGBTQ plus and talked about how it's not black history if it does not include LGBTQ plus people. Period. And a really good example example of this is Claude McKay, who was the first black journalist in the UK. Now, he actually left the UK and went to New York and became part of the Harlem Renaissance. So you see, it's just, it's so rich and wide. It's amazing. That's some black history for that ass, okay? (laughs) We love that. We love that. It seems like you're really kind of just hammering down the point that black Brits in particular have this worldview that's been terribly underrepresented. I to that point, think very often about how we have this reverence for the royal family here in the United States. And I just wanted to hear from you. Can you kind of give us a sense of how the royal family is perceived by Black Brits and more specifically, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle? What is the perception Black Brits carry toward this couple that many around the world see as one of the more progressive royal couples? The, the thing is, we could unpack so much about the royal family, you know, where their money comes from, this whole idea of, you know, lineage and blood. So I'm going to stick or stay away from that and talk from sort of more of a personal, professional perspective. I had some real issues working for a major news agency. I'm not going to say the name. And I covered the royal baby. And I will not accept the fact that the scrutiny that Meghan Markle has received is anywhere near that of any present day royal. And I think it's entirely unjust. And I think it's entirely Mm -hmm. racially motivated. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me explain that. Like this agency that I work for, and I was covering the royal baby, I had to fight to have a defense of Megan across all the platforms, that's text and video. The idea was that she was in the public eye and was just complaining. But an example of this, a really clear one, is that you had at the same time the Queen's son, Prince Andrew, who is confirmed to have associated with and even visited a convicted sex offender, which is Jeffrey Epstein, and still Meghan Markle was this awful thing. I mean, hilariously, there was even this headline, and I'm not going to mention the paper because they're just awful. The headline was, How Meghan's Favourite Avocado Snack, Beloved of All Millennials, is fueling human rights abuses, drought, and murder. You know, the hard-hitting reporting everyone looks for. Yeah, exactly. So from my experience and from what I've seen, there has definitely been unfair scrutiny on Meghan Markle, and I do think it's racially motivated. Mm. Gotcha. gotcha. It's crazy because it seems like the, the issues that exist in the U.S. also exist in the U.K. However, when George Floyd died, it started a worldwide movement. How has the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. impacted or influenced the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.K.? Well, I mean, it's the absolute catalyst for conversation about systemic racism. You know, these tragedies caused such a huge movement within America, which was able to proliferate around the world. What's been great 
for me to see is this allyship and this understanding that you know your white friends need to talk about this and need to learn about it and need to talk to their kids about it. And we've seen this in a proliferation of stories that we're covering as well. I know you guys will know our colleague Nadine White. She's amazing. Yeah, amazing journalist. She's yeah. done so many stories about you know the health inequalities, how COVID-19 has impacted black people more. All of this stuff has happened because of this conversation, including Black Voices, HuffPost UK. Jason, honestly, you're just a brain and we can speak to you all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed this conversation so much because, like I said, it just shows how like blackness is viewed as a threat internationally. But we also pop in and we define the history internationally also. Thank you so much for coming on. Come back anytime. Thank you, Jason. My absolute pleasure. I look forward to it. Thank you. Mm, show notes. Jason, I'm coming back to London 2021. If COVID is not fucking everything up, we going out, okay? I know, that's right. <laughs> Love the sound of that. We are screaming Black Lives Matter in the UK. But we, of course, continue to scream the same tune in the States. Taryn, what you got for us? Ooh, child, I really feel like 2020 is just a never-ending hellscape of Black pain, for real. It feels like the violence at the hands of police, at the hands of the state, is just never going to end, despite all of the social justice efforts, protests, the calls for liberation, even in a pandemic. Because there are a lot of folks who choose not to do better by us. And the result remains that Black folks are still dying in the streets the way that Walter Wallace Jr. just did. If you all um, hadn't heard by now, Wallace was a 27-year-old Black man who suffered from mental health issues and whose family had called for an ambulance as he was suffering from what seemed to be an episode. Now, this happened in Philadelphia, y'all. Police came and Wallace was holding a knife, though not charging at the cops or anyone else for that matter. And his mother begged the cops not to shoot and said that the police knew that he was struggling with mental issues as they have visited their home before. But the police killed him anyway. I don't know how an able-bodied white man can go up in a church and kill nine black worshipers mm -hmm. and get escorted to Burger King by the cops arresting him. But a disabled black man with a knife is immediately gunned down. Like, y'all, I'm so tired. The police in this country continuously fail black people that continuously fail disabled community and god forbid that you both because de-escalation just does not exist well this is exactly what defund the police means right if someone is having a mental health episode the police are not equipped to handle that episode at all especially if you are black you see the police as a threat so that is just going to intensify your fears. The police doesn't, do not have the tools, nor do they have the resources to help someone going through an episode. So this is why we consistently say defund the police and advocate those resources somewhere else. So that we could set up a system in which people who are having an episode can get support by people who are trained and licensed. And I got to tell y'all, I can't help but think about all those people I saw in the wake of George Floyd's murder who posted, you know, those black squares on their Instagram accounts and told us all the things that they were going to do to advance the cause of anti-racism. We've gotten statistics since then that have shown the support for Black Lives Matter has died down. And I think that's what continues to allow instances like uh, Walter Wallace's death to continue to happen is that 
after them, there seems to be this dying down of support. The question is, why do white people in particular allow themselves to display that kind of apathy? I mean, black people are feeling this pain in a very real way. They disassociate. They disassociate. Mm -hmm. That's really what it is. We see who's in the streets right now in West Philadelphia protesting. Mm -hmm. It's black people. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be us standing up for ourselves and also standing up for other people. And at the end of the day, it's like, who the fuck is going to show up for us? We all we got. That's a word right there. Well, it really does seem as though there's so much to protest, y'all. Have y'all been following the latest politics news? I mean, we had... Amy Coney Barrett's appointment. That's been the biggest thing to lose. (laughs) Yes, the Republicans in the Senate forced a Supreme Court justice onto the court as millions of Americans have already voted eight days before the election. And that's where we sit right now. Amy Coney Barrett is the ninth justice on the court. Even though she's never tried a case. Like, she literally was just appointed to to be a judge in, what, 2017? Yes, you saw that list of how underqualified can you be? But that's the thing. You don't have to drag her, Taryn. Her resume drags her herself. <laughs> Two You're years right. in private practice. Never You're tried right. a case. Never argued an appeal. Never argued before the Supreme Court. 15 years of teaching experience. Yet literally she has this lifetime appointment. It seems as though arrogant <laughs> ignorance is abound these days. I mean, between Amy Coney Barrett, did y'all hear the news about Jared Kushner saying that Trump's policies are policies that can help black people break out of the problems that they're complaining about? But he can't want them to be more successful if we don't want to be more successful ourselves. I, have I mean, a headache. Who, who are these white people telling us how to live our lives, y'all? A slumlord. I literally have a headache. Like all of these like mediocre white people literally running the country, making decisions based off of assumptions and stereotypes that they have on people who look like me. Like as a black woman, I'm scared, y'all. What Kushner and Amy both highlight is that the greatest marker on your resume is whiteness, right? Because Barrett, she's not qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. And Kushner, had it not been for all the privilege that he has, he would not be an advisor to the president. Say that. So these two people who are not qualified to have the jobs that they have now have the ability to dictate the lives of black and brown folks. Child, are we surprised? And to be real with y'all, when I heard that Jared Kushner quote, My philosophy is I'm never offended by someone I don't respect, you know? So I don't respect his opinion, certainly on black people. So when I heard it, I I pretty instantly dismissed it. But just to highlight the arrogance of this man, he's sitting on a mountain of ill-gotten gains. Your father went to prison for tax evasion and witness tampering in 2005, Jared. You only got this job because you're the president's son-in-law. How dare you talk to the millions of black people in this country who are actually doing work, who are actually doing work, and we never asked for Jared Kushner's help. We don't need it. Bloop. Y'all know what that means. Vote, vote, vote. And also, quick reminder that it's too late in some states to do the mail-in ballots. Just ask folks in, I don't know, Wisconsin. So... If you want your vote to matter, you have to go to the polls. Make sure you're double checking that in whatever state that you're voting in. Because it's finally here, y'all. Election day is on Tuesday. Vote. Okay? Don't let them take your vote away, y'all. He's going to have you waiting out in the cold. You already know what to do. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break, y'all. But when we come back... We talked to one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, activist and author Alicia Garza, about how to best contribute to a movement and what's at stake. 
And that's that. Stay with us. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. All right, so 2020 isn't just a year of COVID, y'all. It's a year of crossroads. There's no turning back from this historic social justice movement. We've seen the intersectionality of systemic racism really take center stage with millions taking their rallying cries to the streets, and that's during a pandemic. Joining us today, we have a very special guest who knows all about how we come together when we fall apart. As a co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, she was named by Time Magazine as one of 2020's most influential 100 people. The author of The Purpose of Power, she warns us all. The hashtags don't start movements, y'all. We do. People do. Political strategist, iconic activist, we have to welcome Alicia Garza to the mic. Yes. <laughs> Hi. It's so good to be here. It's so good icon, to be here. Icon. Icon. Icon talk. Yeah. Legendary. <laughs> Legendary. We give her the ballroom. Legend. Icon. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, I've read the book and I've marked all over it like it's my Bible. <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an amazing book. And what I love about it, it's just, it's not just the story of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's also your story. Why was it so important for you to highlight how Reagan's presidency, the Rodney King case, and the Anita Hill scandal shaped you as an organizer and an activist today? Mm. Well, um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Y'all, I need like an intro like that every day. <laughs> we got you. We, got you. we do role shows. We got you. That was amazing. <laughs> I will say that I, I think um, two things. One of the biggest misconceptions that people have about movements is that they're only reserved for people who are fighting for justice. And the fact of the matter is um, movements themselves are just people coming together to achieve a common goal. And, you know, a lot of us, I think, don't realize that our whole lives have been shaped by another very powerful movement, and it's the conservative movement. And what I wanted to do in this book was really talk about the impacts that that movement has had on our lives. I wanted us to study it and become scientists in the conservative movement because it is fundamentally um, what is shaping politics today, what is shaping pop culture. Uh, and I wanted to place myself in that story as a model of a method that I think all of us need to do when we're trying to think about what our role is in a movement. So I, I think if we're clearer about what we're up against, then we can develop better strategies on how we fight. 
Um, but first and foremost, we have to see what's happening to us differently. So many of us think that, you know, the world is organized around good or bad people, right or wrong, uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans. But actually, um, our world is actually organized by power and power is built by movements and movements are what happens when people come together to accomplish a goal. And that movement in particular was gaining power and prestige um, as I was growing up. And it really shaped my life outcomes as I talk about in the book. Mm, I love that so much. One thing that I think is very distinct and that I loved about this book is you write with this optimism in your voice that you know, can oftentimes, especially for, you know, folks on the outside looking in, like activism, career activism is such a heavy line of work. And, you know, you not only have done that with the book, you've done that, you know, with your other endeavors, with BLM, with Black Futures Labs. What sustains your hope as you do this heavy work? And what are you most hopeful for about the future, especially as the younger generations begin to pick up the torch? Mm. You know, I love this question because I am hopeful. And there was actually a point in time where I wasn't. And I talk about this in the book that, you know, there was a point in time where I felt like I wasn't actually fighting for America. And I think we do at, at every point in our fight have to analyze well, what are we fighting for? And who are we fighting for? And what does that look like? What does it feel like? Because ultimately, the cynicism that we experience, the nihilism that we experience, it's all incredibly human. And in a lot of ways, it's deserved. I mean, the systems that organize our lives aren't serving us. They're not good for us. And so it's natural for people to be distrustful, to think that things cannot change. But if that's the attitude and the perspective that we bring into change work, it will be reflected in the impacts and the outcomes. And so for me, I am hopeful because I've seen change in my lifetime. Uh, there was a point in time where we never thought we would have a black president. And oh my God, I'm, I've been alive to see that. And to be able to really let that sink in with all of the failures, all of the disappointments, the fact of the matter is that was an indicator of some change. I'm I'm lucky enough to have been alive for now two major explosions of Black Lives Matter in my lifetime that I never dreamed was possible. And I, I want to infect and inject everyone with that level of hopefulness, but not the kind of hopefulness that um, is cheesy or unattainable, right? It's just, This is not like a hallmark hopefulness. There is still <laughs> a lot of doubt that I have. There's still a lot of um, things that are wrong. And yeah. those things are serious and they impact us every day. But if I don't believe that things can change, it's going to be very hard to sustain this fight over the long haul. So um, what sustains me is my vision for mm. what it is that we can achieve. And because I've seen it happen, because I've been a part of making it happen, I know it's possible. Yeah. I know in the book you mentioned that abstaining from voting isn't your preferred strategy for activism. And of course, currently there are a lot of Black people, but just people generally who might feel somewhat apathetic toward uh, both candidates. And so what do you, as someone who's kind of remained in the fight over all these years, 
do to instill a sense of hope within people? Mm. Well, what I try to do is just offer some clarity. Um, because the fact of the matter is, I get it. I get 100% why people don't want to participate, don't think these systems are designed for us. They're not. They're designed and always have been for old white men who are trying to keep their property and keep their money and keep their power. That's just a fact. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that's not the real. That's the real. (laughs) And, um, you know, I'm lucky enough where my mom used to give me all kinds of gems. And one of the gems she always used to say to me is, everything you leave on the table, you leave for somebody else to eat. So go get yours. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Shared some mom gems with us. Shared some mom gems. I've been voting in every election since I was 18 years old. And I was told, just like a lot of black folks are, that our ancestors died for our right to vote. And if you don't vote, your voice doesn't matter. And I don't believe any of that. (laughs) I believe that elections are where we contend for power, as well as a number of other strategies. There's not one best strategy. You have to use all of them. I think how I maintain hope is that I'm clear about the fact that um, I'm picking who I want to fight. Mm-hmm. I'm not picking who I want to have over for dinner, or take you. a walk with. You know, Thank I don't. You. I'm not going to invite Joe Biden over for dinner. Um, he hasn't earned that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and um, what I'm clear about is that there are more favorable terrains to fight on than others. And what I know from this last four years is that um, Trump and his administration is not only not good for black people, but it's not good for our movements. Um, And if they are allowed to keep power, um, that's going to be devastating to anything related to social justice or social change, not just for the next four years, because this man's trying to stay in power indefinitely. Indefinitely. (laughs) Indefinitely. (laughs) So if nothing else, you know what I'm saying? Like literally pick the person that you want to fight. And who I want to fight is Joe Biden. And I plan to keep fighting Joe Biden even after we put him in the White House, because that is actually at the center of what it means to be in a democracy. It means Mm -hmm. that you have to fight to have your voice heard. And it means that it's a terrain upon which you get to shape the decisions that are impacting your life. But you can't do that if you're faced with somebody who literally wants to block you and make it illegal for you to participate. Mm, yeah. <laughs> or not even, or not that even hear you. Yes. Or not even try to That's hear right. you, unfortunately. That's right. I mean, this is a man who puts babies in cages, who separates families. This is a man who um, worked to ban Muslims from coming into this country. This is a man who's building a, wants to build, but he ain't got it together yet, child. A border wall, right? This is a man who, um, when there was white people rolling through Charlottesville with tiki torches, said there's very fine people on both sides. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's it's really a no-brainer here. (laughs) It's not about they're good for us it's who's better for our fights and um it seems clear to me what i love about the book is you also talked about you know the fact that black lives no matter the movement is a bit decentralized right and i know that in the past that has been a big critique of the movement but explain to the people what are some of the benefits of having a movement that some may argue is a bit leaderless or a bit decentralized Mm. well I'll say this, the point of movements is to put more power into the hands of more people. 
That's it. And I think our movements really have to reflect our aims and our goals. And in the book, you're right, I do. I talk about how strategies around leadership really depend on the time, the place, and the conditions. And for too long, our movements have been centralized in such a way where they leave people out, they leave people behind, and they don't challenge the way that power operates. And so really, then that leads us to a conclusion that sometimes what we can be building is trying to replace the people in power with a different face, but the same dynamics. Mm, And that's not mm -hmm. change, right? Right. That's Mm -hmm. not change. Um, Or it's change, but it's not transformation. And so I, I think for me, I try to do this in the book. I try to use the lessons of history to inform the present. And what we know about the last period of civil rights is that one of the ways that movements have been destabilized has been taking out the leadership. Look what happened when Malcolm X was assassinated. Look what happened when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Look what happened when the Black Panther Party leaders were targeted and assassinated. Um, It threw the movement into chaos and it took a long time for the movement to rebuild. And as a result, what got in the space that those movements had left uh, were people who are opportunistic and wanted to take advantage of that gap. That's why they targeted these movements in the first place. So that's one piece of it. And then the other piece of it, frankly, is that decentralization in some ways allows us to rethink how leadership functions and what it looks like. And, you know, we did deal with, um, you know, folks like Oprah who were like, but where are the leaders? Right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it was like those memes, right? She was like, yeah. where are the leaders? And we were like, yo, we right here. <laughs> There's just a lot of us. There's yeah. not just one. And it is possible. And frankly, that's the kind of democracy that we need. We're in trouble right now, child. <laughs> we in trouble, girl. We in, because, okay. <laughs> because, <laughs> because there's one leader and he is trying to have more and more power all the time. So when we look at the Supreme Court, when we look at you know, the balance of power in Congress, when we look at all these different places where rules are being made and unmade, as the case may be, it's because power is consolidated into a smaller and smaller uh, number of hands. So in order for us to transform what's happening in our lives right now, we need more and more people to be in power, have power, and to make rules. And so, you know, decentralization, as I say in the book, is one way of thinking about that. But it's also not a one size fits all. Again, it depends on the context that you're operating in. It depends on what you're trying to achieve. And it depends on who you're working with. But ultimately, the bigger point is that we could stand to rethink how it is that we exercise leadership in order for us to rethink how it is that we're building and exercising power. How has doing this work for the past two decades shifted your scope of what liberation for Black folks mean and how we achieve it? Mm. Well, I think first and foremost, I really wanted us to get from this book that we are complex and multifaceted and that we have to live into that and breathe into that. Mm. Number two, I really wanted us to understand from this book that if all of us don't get there, ain't none of us going to get there. Period. (laughs) Period. And, you know, 
there are so many old models that really privilege um, the same kinds of power dynamics and relationships. I talk in the book about the stories that we tell about how change happens that make women, for example, supporting characters, right, to <laughs> to the to the lead roles. Um, you know, we talk about change as being spontaneous as opposed to being planned and strategic. And all of that serves to um, distort not only the way that change happens, but what we can accomplish. And for me, Nothing is going to happen differently unless we're different and unless we insist on being different and not just being different, like being rebellious, but really addressing the things that hold us back and that leave people behind in a context where we need to build a movement in the millions in order to really take power and transform it. Mm. Some of that has to do with silencing and making invisible the role, the contributions, the leadership, the vision of queer folks, trans folks, gender yeah. nonconforming folks. It's all the conversations that we don't have about who's getting left behind in our communities mm. that allows for some of the vestiges of old power to stay in place. And we don't want that. That does not serve us. And so this is an opportunity. You're so right. We are at a crossroads. And this is an opportunity for us to decide that we're going to make new mistakes and not keep repeating the same old mistakes and expecting mm. different results. Because mm. I'm tired of history repeating itself. Listen, you and me both. You and me both. You know, it wasn't too long ago that we saw that Black Lives Matter was named a terrorist organization, um, you know, by the federal government. Um, and there are a few things going on with Black Lives Matter and like the misunderstanding, the broader misunderstanding around it. And outsiders have come in, disrupt peaceful protests, have targeted Black Lives Matter activists with violence. How important is it that we don't take these things as trivial and that we make sure that we correct and control the narrative of this movement? I will say this, you know, misinformation, disinformation, and lies is what this administration traffics in. It is their currency. And it's because they don't have any other record to stand on in terms of making people's lives better. And when it comes to Black Lives Matter, I mean, in 2016, I want to say, 2016, 2017, uh, there was a new category developed under the FBI called Black uh Black identity extremist. Mm -hmm. And they claimed that it wasn't targeting BLM, the movement or the organization, but that they were uh, designating this new category to kind of highlight what they saw as a trend uh, in people who were, and I quote, proud of their identities, right? And um, mm. trying to shift things in relationship to it. Child. That's me. That's me. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I mean, it's a lot, right? And then, of course, in in this election cycle, you know, they have talked about 
uh, wanting to investigate the extreme left. And so what they have done is, yeah, these are their words. So what they have done is they have lumped in all these different things together, right? Talking about Antifa, which is not an organization, right? It's an ideology. Uh, They're talking about Black Lives Matter. And they're even doing um, the, the devil's work of trying to separate the organization from the movement, like they support either one. (laughs) And so, you know, these are old tactics in a new moment. And I think for the most part, our communities understand what happens when movements become powerful is that they be, they get attacked. And when you have reached the hearts and minds of millions, um, you are a threat. And so, you know, it matters, actually, that uh, Bill Barr, the attorney general of the United States, has talked about wanting to do investigations of, of our movements. Um, and I, I think what it should indicate for all of us is that there's a lot at stake. And, you know, going back to that conversation about elections, like this is the administration that we're up against. Mm-hmm. This is an administration that rather than uh, changing the rules, for example, so that police who kill in our communities can be held accountable, they want to investigate people who are not a threat to our communities, mm-hmm. but are in fact fighting for justice and fighting for accountability and fighting for the kind of change that, frankly, everybody should agree with. I mean, especially all the people who talk about all lives mattering. I'm like, you should be against this, right? right. You should you should be <laughs> in opposition so. to they this. They don't know because... if it's Uchiwali or one mic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I just, I, they don't have the range, right? So at the end of the day, I want us to take seriously the fact that power um, right now is organizing to take us out. And this is a global movement and that's important, right? But it's also threatening. And I tell these stories not to scare us or to make us, to immobilize us, right? But I tell these stories to energize us, to equip us with the knowledge and the tools that we need to fight smarter, not harder, and in order for us to to achieve some victories. And I think every one of us could use a victory right now. I hear that. I hear that. I'm always looking for a victory. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) In your book, I have to say, you keep it all the way real. And you highlight like how Deere McKesson has consistently received credit for being one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. Throughout history, we have seen that Black women consistently do not get the credit they deserve for starting movements, for the work that they do in movements. Now, we don't want history to repeat itself. What work do we all need to do to make sure that Black women start getting the recognition they deserve for the work that they do so beautifully? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, I think the first thing we have to do is interrogate our stories about movements. And one of the things that I talk about in that chapter is that this isn't unique to BLM. It's not unique to our movement. It's really a pattern that happens over and over and over again, where, I mean, we give power and credit um, to people who haven't worked for it. I talk about the fact that we put people on pedestals and I think that that's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, Movements are messy. They are incredibly messy. And 
that's because they're made up of human beings and human beings are messy. messy. We are complicated. <laughs> <Big> messy boots. <laughs> we are complicated, right? <laughs> and um, the reason that I, I lay that out is because I want us to understand that the goal is not to get a million followers on Twitter. The goal is not for people to know you. The goal is to make change. And that doesn't mean that platforms are bad. It doesn't mean that profiles are bad. But the question should always be for what and for who. And if the answer to that question is for me, myself, and I, we have a problem. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I fundamentally believe that our movements need to not be afraid of power and we need to not be afraid of profiles. And in fact, the only way my grandma, my aunties, my uncles are going to learn about this movement is if we break through to where they're getting their information. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is Black Lives Matter has been able to do that in a very, very powerful way. We are um, a part of kitchen table conversations across the world. And that is how this movement has grown. And it is one of the reasons that Black Lives Matter is now a household name. And at the same time, we can't stop there. Um, the goal of breaking through is not to advance your own personal profile, right? Yes. Um, the goal of breaking through is to get to people who are looking for us. That's it. Mm. We got to build a movement mm. in the millions. And so we got to operate on the platforms that are meeting millions of people where they are. Right, right. And you did that. You yeah. that's power right there. Yeah. That's power. Yeah. Just amazing. Alicia Garza, Black Lives Matter co-founder, mm -hmm. author of The Purpose of Power. Thank you so much. This is this has been so amazing and so yeah, so vital, especially as we go into one of the most important elections of of my lifetime. I appreciate y'all so much. Thank you for having me. And that's that. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> All right, y'all. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. Wrap this up with the wrap up. You may not be able to afford a Birkin per Saweetie's advice, but... <laughs> You may be able to get your hands on some of that new Ivy Park Drip 2, which is out now. Have y'all seen it? It's Beyonce's Adidas line is here. And honestly, the shit is fire. It's hot. It's hot. I didn't get no Ivy Park 1, but I love the pastels. I'm showing up and showing out. Are they in the sneakers? Did she have any sneakers? Yeah, she got sneakers. She got you a, a little mint green. You know, she got no. different colors, giving you a little marshmallow candy drop, okay. uh, jumpsuits, two-piece here and there. And I feel like it's given inspired by her own pre-show tour outfits. And I just want to know, like, I saw everybody get the boxes round one. I had to go out and buy my own shit round one. <laughs> my birthday coming up. Beyonce, with my box? I'll yeah, I'm waiting on box. mine, too. Come on now. Come on now. We love some uh, pandemic era athleisure to sit around the house with. Hello, hello. We love it. And you know, this would have been perfect for homecoming, homecoming season, but as you all know, COVID canceled HBCU homecomings, which really hurt my heart. Um, and the season is almost done. It fell upon us in a very different way this year. Virtual homecomings was the steez. And I didn't hate it. 
<laughs> but also, you know, it's it's an adjustment. I spoke to some folks um, for a story um, um, recently, actually, from FAMU and Catton, of course, my alma mater, Howard University, to talk about. That's the other HU, right? That is the real HU. <laughs> oh, okay. We're not going to do this. Not gonna do this. Yeah. Look, Hampton, I, I love you, but y'all know what's up. Oh, y'all know no, what's don't up. start no mess, Taryn. Who's starting mess? That's your that's your friend over there trying to instigate. I don't want but, no you problem. Know, it's all love. It's all love. I feel like because homecoming season was kind of scrapped or, you know, in a different way, the spirit still lives on. You know, I feel like, you know, the folks I, I spoke to for this story, it was a sense of community and, you know, want to really uplift and empower and make sure that that spirit of like being black and beautiful and regal and leaning on each other, it was there. But I know next year, if it's safe, I'm going to have to do a little HBCU homecoming tour. I got to hit up all of them. <laughs> okay. Okay. We, around John, the country. John, you ever been to any homecomings? Yeah. I mean, I didn't go to an HBCU, but I went to Arizona State. Arizona State is one of the, is the largest university in the country. So our homecoming wasn't as steeped in, you know, the black historical aesthetic, but it was a different kind of I'm going to be honest. Sure. I, I do not desire to go to any PWI or any homecoming that isn't a HBCU because HBCU homecomings are literally the standard. Like, I mean, I can still go to an HBCU homecoming without going to an HBCU. I'm look, to three. Look, no, you can you go. Know? You can, I can go. Still do that. Y'all throw good look, parties. You I, I, I love the yeah. parties. I mean, <laughs> yeah, okay, exactly. Okay, right. And I, that's the thing about homecoming. Like HBCU homecomings like bring in the community. Like literally all of like DC was at Howard homecoming. Everybody, everybody else. You know, I know the same goes for G-Ho, the same goes for Spellhouse, FAMU, all of that. But what I am saying is PWI homecomings ain't got shit on us. <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna pull up. I'm gonna pull up. I'm gonna give it to her. One year NYU tried some shit and I don't know what the hell <laughs> They thought they were doing it. You said try, huh? They tried it. They you tried said try, huh? That's the key word. A, they tried. They tried it hard. I'm a proud NYU alum, but I was like, this will be the first and the last homecoming that I'll be attending. I feel you. No, you definitely need a football field if you're going to have any kind of homecoming. So NYU ain't got no business. Um... <laughs> Unlike Taryn, I'm not really an avid TV watcher like that. I, I stick to Charmed and Cheetahs. <laughs> <laughs> I love Cheetahs. And I'm trust me, I'm your boy. I Google it on YouTube and I skip to the confrontation. I don't got time for tears. <laughs> I don't you like the time. mess. You like the mess. Okay. I want to see what happens when you pull up. Let's just you got to watch the build point. up. You got to get, get into the build up. Pull up team. The pull up is the reward. <laughs> But we have a blessing, y'all. We have a new trailer for Cheetahs with love and hip-hop New York's own Creep Squad captain Peter Guns. Tearing how you feel. But Peter Guns is the new host of Cheaters. And let's take a listen to the clip. I'm Peter Panky, a.k.a. Peter Guns. We were Cheetahs. (laughs) (laughs) This ain't great, baby. I know the game. I've been down the floor. I was with you. Watch Cheaters, riveting new season. All right, all right, all right. Homeboy said, I know the game. I know the game. As he was confident so much. I can't think of a better casting. (laughs) Who hasn't he cheated on? People are saying he's a hypocrite. But that's what I want to see. I want to see somebody who knows the game be the host. You know what I mean? Because he's going to give it to the folks raw. He ain't going to tell them no fluff, no craziness. He's going to tell them what it is. He playing you. She not with it. They don't like you like that. Move on. Dream on. You could do better. 
And just for everybody else out there, there's only one host of cheaters. So I don't want anybody else thinking that they can stumble into this job. There's only one Peter Guns, one host of cheaters. You ain't gonna cheat your way into equal success. So maybe just, you know, chill a little bit. Look, all I'm saying is this is terrible for the black men don't cheat agenda. And that's that for this week. Thanks again to our <laughs> guest, Alicia Garza. Our show is produced and edited by Izzy in the 90s kind of world. I'm glad I got my girls best, Nick Offenberg, Sarah Patterson, and Becca DiGregorio. I'm Jahan Jones. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Jahan. I'm Taryn Finley. You can find me at underscore tearing it up everywhere. And I'm Shakira Romblay, and you can follow me at Romblay everywhere. We'll be back next week, and who knows, there might even be a new president. Until then, keep it juicy, including at the ballot box. Joseph Rose. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.